The ancient Egyptians postulated seven souls. Top soul, and the first to leave at the moment of death, is Ren, the secret name. This corresponds to my director. He directs the film of your life from conception to death. The secret name is the title of your film. When you die, that's where Ren came in. Second soul and second one off the sinking ship is second. Energy, power, light. The director gives the orders. Second presses the right button. Three is Cool, the guardian angel. He, she, or it is third man out. Number four is Ba, the heart, often treacherous. Number five is Ka, the double, the Ka, which usually reaches adolescence at the time of bodily death. Is the only reliable guide through the land of the dead. Number six is Kahabit, the shadow, memory, your whole past conditioning from this and other lives. Number seven is Sacred, remain. Halfway to China. Welcome, everybody, to AM Byte. Welcome to AB Live. Happy Saturn Day, and hope everybody's doing well. Certainly, I've been uh, digging, digging, and shoveling snow for the last 24 hours. I've, we've been hit pretty hard here in northern Illinois, and uh, in comes the brutal cold, but I'm sure many of you will be experiencing drastic temperature changes very soon but we shall keep it warm here as today we have an exciting show and hopefully we'll get warmed up in the sands of egypt so other than that glad to see everybody here i see everybody already going into the chat room uh hopefully there will be no witiko and turn it into the chatico but as usual it's uh, always a great conversation in the chat room and great questions. As always, please super chat your questions so we can get to them. With us today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Jose Maria Barrera. Jose, thank you very much for joining the show. Miguel, thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. Thanks. Honor is all ours. And with us too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Pretty good for an early Saturday morning here in California. And uh, looking forward to I always loved Egypt and so forth. So um, looking forward to this. Should be good. Yes, we will be discussing Jose's great book, Dendera Temple of Time, which is a, a, a visual and intellectual and even, uh, well, spiritual feast. Uh, and, I'll, and 
a lot of great data. Jose does a great job of also taking us through a lot of the Egyptian mysticism and theology. So this is certainly a book you should have. Uh, obviously, some may be thinking coffee table. Uh, because, yes, obviously, when I have guests, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, occult stuff. So always a good thing to have around so you can bring up all that stuff as your family and friends like roll their eyes like, oh, my God, this guy's going to bring up all this esoteric <laughs> stuff. But so what? This is what we do. And this is how we get out of this black iron prison. So, uh, Jose, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to uh, creating <coughs> the book. Yeah, so... I live in New York City. I'm a computer scientist, a computer nerd, and I'm also a photographer. That's my hobby, and I've been doing photography for many, many years. And like a decade ago, I ended up uh, traveling to Egypt with my family, with my wife and daughters. And of all the places in Egypt, the one that struck me the most was this temple, the Temple of Dendera, that is like probably like an hour north from from uh, Luxor. And it's not very visited. It's, it's not a, one of the most uh, important tourist, or it is an important, but it's not one of the most popular tourist destinations in, in Egypt because it's kind of away from the centers that is the, the Valley of the Kings and Giza, which are the places where most, most uh, tourists gravitate to. But this place, is incredible. It's, it's, it's not a very old temple. Well, in relative terms, it's <laughs> 2,000 and 100 years or something like that. So it's not like incredibly old for the Egyptian standards. But what it has that very few places in the world have of constructions of this time is that it's in perfect shape. The temple is in perfect conditions. So all its walls, all its ceilings, everything is in place still. So it's not like if you go to, uh, I don't know, Ephesus, or you, you go to one of these, uh, you go to a Parthenon, you go to this place, and what you have is some columns and some structural uh, parts of these temples are still standing, and you have to imagine the place. No, this temple in Egypt is still standing and still alive, and beautiful and it was clean that the, the 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 ceilings and walls were clean like during the last decade and all the color of the temple is still there so so when you go there the, one of the most beautiful things about this place is that its original colors are still standing and so it's pretty much alive and is is wonderful and not very well known and after the cleaning the, i think the the main spectacle at this temple is the ceiling in its pronaeus. The pronaeus is uh, the columnate room at the entrance of temples, where basically the main entrance of the temple. And it has these majestic columns uh, that have the, the, the face of the goddess Hathor on top. The goddess Hathor is the, the, the goddess of the temple. And these 24 columns, 24, one for each hour of the day, uh, basically support a gigantic ceiling that has panels and on these panels in full color what you have is astronomical scenes and this place was it's like imagine that you go to the Sistine Chapel mm. and 
is that kind of quality of images and colors and and it looks pretty much as, as restored as, as the Sistine Chapel, but imagine that you show up there and if you don't know anything about the Egyptian culture or, or anything of this, imagine you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and you don't know any of the myths about it. So yeah. you, you, you realize that you're underneath something that is majestic, but is out of reach because you don't understand the context and what it is. So it was tantalizing to me to be underneath this ceiling and not knowing what it meant and what it was about. Uh, so, and I'm obsessive compulsive, so I decided, you know what, I want to learn about this. And the frustration is that there, there was no literature in English about this temple. Everything oh. fine is highly academic and is in either German or French. And there are these arcane, very technical Egyptological books about this. So there is no information accessible to, to the people. So, so and nothing in English. So I was like, this is something, and I was looking for this book all over the place to try to understand it, and I couldn't find it. So I was like, okay, this deserves to be made. And, and that's how I ended up doing this, is just out of my curiosity and, and the awe that I felt underneath this ceiling. And I want to transmit this because I think this should be like known by people because it's a beautiful place. Oh, indeed, for sure. And the imagery in your book is just so gorgeous. So this temple was built during the Ptolemy dynasty, right? Correct. So this temple is basically was built at the sunset of the Egyptian culture. Mm -hmm. And the Romans have already arrived to, to, to Egypt and they were starting to take control of Egypt. And this temple is, is famous for one other thing along her, like, what, what it is, but it's that this temple has an image of Cleopatra, the seventh, like, oh, wow. And, and her son in the back of the temple, you can see her son, the son that she had with Caesar Augustus, uh, is still there in the, in the, <laughs> and he's, wow. they were murdered afterwards, right? Like, uh, but, but, is one of the few images of Caesarion, the, the son of Caesar, and, and Cleopatra, basically. So, so it's full of history and, and it's fascinating. Yeah, and you had to, you went there with your family and you went back, right? I think so. Uh, to... So I went there with my family and, and out of the inspiration of not understanding anything that I saw there, right? Like I, I, I love to read and I'm a geek. So, so I'm always <laughs> trying to understand things. But, but, Egypt in particular is so foreign to like if you don't study Egyptology and if you don't study their myths and so on, there's some foreign and removed from Western uh, the Western tradition, even though they're the foundation of the Western tradition in many ways. Uh, because and by the way, the like if you if you consider that we still uh, live in the, our heritage is Hellenistic, right? It comes from from Greece and, and Rome. But they, a big influence of Greece and Rome was Egypt. And, and during, during the Ptolemaic period, which is the period where the Greeks conquered and, 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 and took possession of, of Egypt, the, the, the bed of culture in the world was Egypt. And all known writers and philosophers of today, like, like Pythagoras and uh, Aristotle and all these guys, they went to Alexandria in Egypt, the capital of, of Egypt at the time, and, and they studied there with the priests. 
And, and so a big part of the culture that we have today was an infusion of culture from Egypt into, and it was this mixture, right? And you can see it in the ceiling. In the ceiling, one of the things that you have is, for example, the images of the Zodiac, mm -hmm. which they are not Egyptian. They were brought by the Persians when they invaded Egypt and by the Greeks who had incorporated the Egyptian Zodiac into their, into their mythology and so on. So this is a temple of 300 years of uh, interpollination between cross-pollination between these two cultures. And, and it's a wonderful syncretism of ideas from basically Egyptian and, and, and Babylonian and Greek in the ceiling, which ended up being what is basically the, 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 the last part of the, of the Egyptian empire, basically. Fascinating. And just a quick question. I remember I had friends uh, several times 10 years ago go to Egypt. And whenever they'd get to Egypt, the tour guide or the people at the hotel said, look, when somebody asks you where you're from, don't say American, say you're Canadian. It'll be safer for you. <laughs> Did you have anything like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so I have a, a double nationality, right? I'm originally from Colombia, but I've been here right. in the States for 30 years. And when I traveled there, I, I traveled like the first time when we went, I, 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 we traveled with our American passports. And when we arrive, they give you basically an escort that takes you all over the place in Egypt if you're American. So it's very, very interesting because their sense, and, and it's a very safe place. Like Egypt is incredibly safe. Like nothing happens to you. There is, is, and they, and tourists are very well protected and, and covered, right? Because they live from tourism. So the last thing they right. want is something happening to, but to American uh, tourists, they give you like armed escorts, which oh, is wow. interesting because it's, I think it's their way to try to say, look, this is safe. You're safe here. But the funny thing is when you have someone with a gun, following you all the place, the last thing you feel is safe. It's like, what the hell is going on here that they have to do this for you? So it's, yeah. it's very interesting. So after that, like, and that was my, my first trip. After that, it's like three more trips to, to Egypt in the time of doing this, this uh, book. And so I decided to do it with my Colombian passport. And it's way more relaxed. Nobody gives a damn uh, that you're there and so on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. No tienes dinero or anything. <laughs> they know right. they want to go with the gringos, has all the money. <laughs> right. And if, of course, they have a guard escort, it just means somebody out there hates you, which is unfortunately a, a problem even, with Americans. <laughs> so, you know, you know what is interesting? I, I don't even think that's the case. Hmm. I, I think is their gesture is like, okay, we have an extra layer of protection for you. So you come to our country and feel safe. But as I said, it, it the, the intention is totally like the opposite of, of the result of what you get right, having, right. having that. <laughs> now, right, having that's said that, supposed to be in an Indiana Jones movie or something. But, <laughs> I, but having said that, one of the sad things about Egypt, I think now, is that as time goes by and as they normalize tourism, and it, it becomes more and more like Disney World. Mm. So, so when you go there, then all of a sudden you see that to go to the pyramids you have these roads that you have to take and, and then you cannot wander too much of the roads and i what i think is that as time goes by this is going to be more and more delineated and this is the place where you can go and this you can one of the nice things about traveling the third world like, like egypt 
is that is it still authentic? You go there and and it's like literally like going like Indiana Jones. I remember in this temple uh, on the back they have a pool, like empty of course, but that was the sacred pool where the priest used to take baths before he went into the into the into the temple. And now it's empty. And there was this door at the back of the of the of the pool. And I was like, I and I was alone there, like there was nobody in this temple. It's not very, it's not well, like people don't go there very often. So so I went down into this tunnel and I started walking inside this tunnel, turn on the light of my cell phone, and my heart is pounding because you walk into this and Actually, what I'm pining of is, okay, first, someone could have taken a dump there in one of these things, and <laughs> you want to step on it. <laughs> but, but, but more than that is you realize they have, like, snakes and scorpions and things like this, and oh, you're wow. walking to these holes. You don't know what the hell is going to show. But, but the thrill of being able to do that and walking in that place, and I turn on the light, there is a bat hanging in there so it was like oh my god i'm out of here and i wow. i came out of this but it's, it's wild it's, it's that's part of the beauty of it well, hopefully it doesn't uh, yeah hopefully it doesn't get too commercialized i'm worried next time you'll go you'll walk in the temple and see a mcdonald's and a starbucks there oh, oh, oh no you you start to see them around <laughs> everywhere like so you go to Luxor, <laughs> and at the entrance of Luxor, there is a mcdonald's oh no way yes no way. of course there is <laughs> Ah, uh, this world, this world, it's something else. So maybe we can discuss the little bit about the temple because, again, your book, you're not just showing all these wonderful visuals. You explain how the Egyptians saw time, uh, how they saw eternity. But the idea of a temple might be something we can talk about because most people, we hear the word temple like we hear the word church and don't give it much thought. How did the Egyptians see a temple like you write the temple had two main categories. The first was mortuary temples that were dedicated to specific pharaohs, each of whom became a god upon his, upon his demise. The Egyptians referred to such a temple as mansion of millions of years and used it as a shrine where the deceased pharaoh could be worshipped as a divine being. And, of course, then there's the other types of temple which was dedicated to a, a deity, but... Also, I think it's so fascinating, as you say, temple comes from the Latin for time. So these temples were always something to be eternal, beyond time, right? Or tell us more about the Egyptian idea of a temple. Okay, okay. So, yeah, it's the, the word temple comes from the same root as temporal, right? Like, mm -hmm. It's time. And, and to template, a template as well is the same. And tension, right? And, and, and the name comes, is super interesting, is the foundation of these temples. The, the pharaoh um, used to go there and like stretch a rope that marked the corners, the, 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 the corners of the temple. And, and that basically set the position of the temple, which were usually aligned to astral uh, uh, events, right? So, so the, the rising of a star and and then the temples these old temples were aligned to these to these stars and they were portals in reality the temples were the nexus between this realm and the realm of the gods so so the temple was a copy of the universe and the temple represents the universe like a mini copy of the temple is 
very similar to the mandalas. Like you look at Tibetan mandalas mm -hmm. and you look at the, at the, at the Tibetan temples, like the, when you see the shape from the top of the temple, they look like a mandala. They are mandalas, and but three-dimensional, right? And the, what they represent is they are the structure of, in that case, the, the Buddhist conception of the universe. So it's the cosmology of, of, of a Buddhist temple uh, is embodied on the walls of the temple and the structure of the temple represents that. It is very similar to, to that is what these Egyptians did. So the columns, the columnate, they represented the trees, right? Like, and, and what is beautiful about the Egyptian culture is that the biggest impact that they had there was the Nile, right? And the life around the Nile and so on. So the beauty of having an autochthonous tradition that grew up in there is that everything is a reflection of the Nile. And, and when you look at the hieroglyphs at, at the beginning, they're beautiful, but when you, when you detail them, what you realize is that they are the animals of the Nile and they are the day-to-day -day objects that they had. So, so it's very autochthonous and everything is very indigenous and, and it's a reflection just like the palms and the dates grow by, by the Nile. These temples, when you look at them and you look at how colorful they, they were and, and the, the, the inscriptions on their walls are the animals of the Nile and so on, they're part of the Nile. They're, they're grow with the Nile. And it's beautiful because it's, they couldn't exist anywhere else. This, this, this culture had to be of the Nile. And, and then all the myths and all the traditions is the cycles of time of the flooding of the Nile, of the desert, of the fight between the, the dryness of the desert and the yeah. water of the Nile. And this is struggle during the year. And, and all these cycles, that's their myths and their stories are very pragmatical and they are about how to behave and how to live in harmony with the environment they, they happen to be in, which was that incredibly, is, is a place of extremes, which is interesting, mm. right? Like, is, like you go to Brazil or this place and they're beautiful, but they're monotonous. It's you, you, you walk and it's all the year is kind of the same. Sure. And, right. Yeah. This is a place different in, in a way, like Nordic countries have this as well. And it's that you, there, there are seasons here. So during the, the year, they, the environment changes, right. And you have to change the way you behave to, to be in harmony with the, with the, with the, and it's a matter of life of death, right. Like if you, if you don't, dress up in, in winter and you, right. get, you don't get shelter, <laughs> you die. So same thing happened in Egypt in a different way. And it was there in the middle of a desert, freaking desert. Like you, you walk into, into in, in Egypt, right? And the river is this anomaly in the middle of this gigantic desert. Right. And, and, and is they, they used to call it like, the gift of the Nile. Egypt is the gift of the Nile. That's the, the, the saying. And it's true. Is Egypt exists because of the Nile. And, and, but it's a very harsh environment. And these people have to plan when they, like, the, 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 so the, the, the river, before it was dammed in, in the 50s, right? It, was, it had a flooding every year and a time of dryness. 
And mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, when the rains, the torrential rains in, Eto in Ethiopia have happened in, in March and April, then the, all that water starts to, to go down the river and, and, and that makes the river to flood on the banks of this desert. And, and it, it brings all these nutrients from, from Ethiopia and, and it creates one of the most fertile lands in the world. But it's a paradox because in the middle of this desert and as the year goes by and the sun starts to regain space, then it starts to shrink again as the water dries. So it's always this palpitation, these this ebbs and flows of fertility and death. And is you, you can imagine, right? You could just like look at Egypt from, from, from space and look at the Nile. And, and you could speed up time. What you would see is this thing pumping, right? Like the river grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks. And each of these cycles, which happen once a year, so it was a yearly cycle, determine the life and the agricultural life of when to grow, when, when, to, when to plant, when to grow, when to harvest. All, everything was around this palpitation. And, and that defined their life and all their meats were about how to control and understand this these pumping of the Nile back and forth, this breeding of the Nile. Yeah, so it's beautiful. beautiful. It's very organic. It's incredibly organic once you uh, see it like that. I'm very jealous. Very yeah. jealous that you visited. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, just, we, I understand extremes. Uh, looking out at the snow and it's going to be minus 15, but then if you were having this interview in July, it'd be 95 and everything's green. Yeah, right. <laughs> 110 degrees uh, shit. Right. But so fast. And the, the temple it was dedicated to Hathor. Um, right. what, uh, what would you say was the role of the priest? I mean, again, we're trying to get away from that idea of temple. Like today they just walked in and said, Oh, okay. Hathor, Hathor. And then they walked out and <laughs> went to, went to dip brunch with their family or something like we do today. Uh, what was the role of the priest? Seems very, a very multifaceted and important role. Okay. So temples were... No, no, they were not. They were places of worship, obviously, but they were like more. I would imagine like like universities today. Mm -hmm. They were these centers of knowledge, where and what happened is that the priestly class, they were the rulers of society. The pharaoh was the the, the high priest of the, mm -hmm. of the. So it was basically this was a religious structure, and and the temple was a political institution, where all the knowledge and all the administration of the state and so on happened. And it's more, they have in, in temples in, in, in Egypt, almost every temple, they're like on, on, on the banks of the, of the Nile and they have something called a Nilometer. And it's basically, they have this, this hole with, with like, like a staircase, like a cylindrical staircase. And they used to measure with that the flooding of the Nile. So, so, this was a center where they were like controlling, okay, how much water are we going to have this year? Mm -hmm. and, and based on the inundation of the level that they, and based on that, they used to charge taxes. So, so the rate of taxation is, is beautiful because it was according to, oh, if we have this much water, it means that we can produce this much and then we can collect this much from people. So, so the, the economic indicator, they use the river as an economic indicator to see how much they could levy on taxes on people. 
which is fascinating. It's fascinating. It's way more complex than what we have today. Like if you imagine the IRS and all this, they have like, oh, this category, if you make from this to this, you pay 20%, but it's, right, regardless right. of if is the economy, doing, the, the economy doing good or bad or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's a flat rate you pay, that's it. In there, they calibrated this rate based on the bounty that they could get out of the river, basically. So it's very wise because they didn't, they didn't stress the economy, the system, and because, by the way, when when there was dryness and and if and if it was the crops were not good that year, and and the pharaoh came and said, "Oh, you have to give me fifty percent of what you have," then people die of starvation, and then you have a revolution on your hands. Mm-hmm. So you had to know how much you could extract out of people, and you look at the at the dynastic Egypt, and you look at the periods of like of wealth of the of the culture and when the strong dynasties came and the times of struggle when there were revolutions and civil wars and all this, they kind of correspond with good and bad years of the river. So, so if you have dryness for too long or if it was torrential, that's another problem. If you have yeah. too much water, then you get you get what is uh, uh, what they call Typhoon was the name, the Greek name of the god that is typhus, right? And all these like diseases. The name of the diseases is the water just like like getting rotten, right? Like putrid on the on the the river, and then people die of of. So it was like a harsh environment, but gracefully they managed to gracefully create this beautiful uh, culture around it. Interesting, interesting, and. uh, Tell us, maybe share some of the uh, what you encoded on the ceilings. Some cool stuff you might have been. Okay. I'm worried you were looking up and there was something written like, "Have you thought about extended car warranty or something like that?" <laughs> <laughs> well, they have some of those things they have there because we you know this is a political place. So, so the, yeah. what they have is the names of the emperors who were like five. five. So part of the prestige of the emperors right, of the pharaohs, was how much they invested on society. So, oh, we're building, we have this new uh, temple that we're building or this new pyramid or whatever it is that showed, like, the grandiosity of, of this. Like, so these public works, right, like, you can imagine now, uh, I don't know, you think about in, in, in modern times, you think about the FDR or you think about presidents in this country who created infrastructure, who created, like, the, right. I don't know, the... JFK uh, airport and infrastructure, right. highways and so on. It was along those lines. But then on the ceiling, what you have is the names of the and then the walls, the names and the images of the pharaohs who finance the the temples, basically. So in a way, yeah, you see, like sponsored by propaganda, so, yeah, <laughs> correct, propaganda. Correct. <laughs> correct. Now the ceiling itself is an astronomical ceiling and. As I mentioned, since it is a late uh, temple, then the nice thing about this ceiling is that it encodes most of the astronomical knowledge of the time uh, that the Egyptians had. And the ceiling is divided in seven panels. So as you walk on, 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 on this room, uh, the main axis of the, of the temple, you walk underneath the main panel or, or the central panel of the ceiling. And that's the, the the panel dedicated to the pharaohs because that's what they used to they, they walk underneath this panel because there was the the corridor the central corridor of the temple, and then as you walk to the sides, then what you have is different images of 
different and the reason why the book is called Temple of Time, it took me a long time to understand what the book was about. Mm -hmm. or, or not the book, the, the ceiling was about. And that's and, and this ceiling, yes, they're astronomical ima imagery, but it's, it's not stars, the subject matter of the ceiling. The stars are used to measure cycles of time. Mm -hmm. And one very interesting difference between the way they conceive time and we do is that we have this idea of time being linear and it is oh yeah you you come here you have one chance and then you're doomed or safe for eternity and it's linear and time goes on a straight line mm -hmm. the conception of time in antiquity and it is not only uh, proper to the to the egyptians but other cultures was cyclical so time started and ended uh, the times for example like they used to measure uh, <clears throat> Uh, the public life, they the years were reset with the with the when 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 a pharaoh was instituted. So when he came to power, time started again, just like the the coming of Christ divided time into before and after. Then okay. the lifespan of the of the pharaoh was the period of time of the time, and and events were oh in the year X uh, ten of the ruling of uh, pharaoh X. And that's the way, and they get reset and reset. So that's one cycle was the lifetime of the of the pharaoh. But basically, if you think about it, then it's, it's so obvious time in a way is cyclical because just like the Nile that we said that it comes and goes and the heart pumps and in and out, right? And, yeah. and you breathe in and out and everything has this cycle. And then what they start to look is ways to measure things, use nature and use the stars, who, which have a predictable movement, right. to try to figure out when the flooding of the Nile was about to come. And so, so what they start to do is all these observations of, oh, the Nile, the, 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 the flooding of the Nile corresponds to the Heliadic rises of the, the dog star, the Sirius. Mm -hmm. basically and, and they encoded that in a myth and they put it on the ceiling somewhere but so it is an astral event an astronomical event in the sense that they're depicting something that happens in the sky but to measure to reckon time to account for time and different cycles of time are encoded in this temple and the the function of the priests and this is the beauty and, and this was the, the big insight that I got, and I'm just to spill the beans out of what, what is the big insight in the book here, is that the institution of the temple was like a pacemaker. Uh -huh. So the way it worked is that, yeah, you can foresee the future looking at the stars, right? Astrology. But you can see this in two ways. Yeah, I can create a horoscope to see if I'm going to have a good date the next time I go or I should do business or not. That's one way to look at foretelling the, the future. The other one is if I look at the gods in the sky, namely the stars, and I see that this is the first time in the year that I see this star, then I can tell that, oh, the flooding of the Nile is going to come a month from now or a lunation from now or right. whatever it is. So you start to use the sky as a clock, as a gigantic watch that you're using to foretell when things are going to happen. And the, so what they did is 
in order to create a society that is harmonious to the gods in the sky, which literally, I'm, I'm not talking anymore about like, oh, gods in the sky. Like, no, gods in the sky are the celestial beings that are the stars, mm-hmm. right? And the planets and so on. Those are the celestial beings that if I look at them in the sky, then I can foresee what is going to happen in the future. And then what I do is my religion is all these rituals that I create around these celestial configurations of movements Mm -hmm. that drive, in turn, the behavior of the society. So we're going to do a ritual of harvesting when the moon is here and that. That tells you, is giving you time on, oh, I have to plant now. I have to, the inheriation ritual where all of us are going to have beer. Okay, that comes after you have to plant the, <laughs> the cereals and take them and create the beer and so on. But so what you're doing with all these, and they had ceremonies and rituals around festivals across all the year, driven by the priests, what they were doing was saying, this is time to harvest, this is time to do this. this is and all life was regimented by these movements in the sky. So, and that's the way they created this harmonious society that mm. persevere for 6,000 years. And because they didn't tax too much, because they were good enough thinking about, oh, if this is a good year, I can tax more than if I not. If they haven't done that, then the society wouldn't have subsisted that long. So you can see all these things in very pragmatical ways. And it's funny because when you look at these temples, you think, oh, these were like all these people were just like, primitive people, right, that had a lot of uh, wacky ideas and they believe in these gods with <laughs> animal, animal heads. Head. <laughs> yeah, like just like today in India, the same thing, right? No, no, right. This, there is this deep, this deep meaning and those, that's just a, a language to describe in a very beautiful and, and, and vivid way real events that happen. And, and that was fascinating was to see how harmonious this society was. Not that I'm uh, idealizing it in any way. It was brutal and cruel and it was an autocracy and it was horrible. But in many ways, they did something that we don't do today, right? And and they, we, what we have done with with our technology is too violent the the natural cycles of of life, right? So, So I don't know, just think about what you do with electric light is you can extend the, the, the amount of time that you can be awake during the day, right? So now right. it's not only you not only have 12 hours or whatever of light, you can have 24 hours of light. But think about all the stresses that come with that and all the, all the malignance that comes with that that we don't think about, but is like in, in the psyche, mind, what is the effect of not having proper sleep because of a... Right, electric yeah. light and things like that and so all these conveniences that we create in a way what they do is they subvert these natural cycles and which in a way is is wonderful that we can do that but it has consequences unforeseen consequences that we don't think about and those, those are the the sickness and the diseases in our societies are, are those things 
Beautifully said, and couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I also think we should uh, we should send the whole uh, IRS department to that temple to maybe, and our politicians to learn how to rule, because in that way they were ruling <laughs> better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Vance, what do you think, or do you have a question? Well, it makes a lot of sense to me that the Egyptians would use the sky at night as a calendar. You know, um, that'd be the natural thing to do. Um, it probably goes way further back than even the Egyptians, you know, to the, you know, if you want to call them proto-Egyptian societies, you know, to, to look at the sky um, and so forth. Don't see any super chats out there. So um, let's have some of those. If you guys have questions. Now I'm, I'm interested in that Zodiac um, um, portrayals on the uh, ceilings of the temples. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that, that's a fascinating story. So, and I'm writing an article now about that. And he's, so at the turn of the century, of the 19th century, it was the first new encounter of Europe with, with Egypt when Napoleon decided to invade uh, Egypt. And so you can imagine all these Europeans of the Enlightenment that get on a boat Right, on many boats, and, and they they just land at, at, at Alexandria, and, and they go in, in inland up up the Nile, and they start to find all these all these monuments, and the, but the interesting thing is that when, when they go to to these temples, they're full covered in hieroglyphs. At the time, people we we have lost the ability to read hieroglyphs, so so you go to these temples, and what you find is basically all this gobbledygook on the walls of these places. But obviously, something very important is happening because these places are grandiose, right? Like they, they have techniques and, and these temples are passing in many ways the architecture of the time of Napoleon, right? So, like, so, so you go there and you realize, and that's one of the first things that you realize when you go to Egypt, one of the wonderful things about it is that when you go there, you realize how small you are. Like, it's, oh my God, how ignorant I am. These, these places make you feel ignorant. When you go to a, one of these temples where you have statues that are like seven story high statues and covering in signs that you don't understand, the first thing that you feel is I'm minute. You feel like an ant in these places, physically and intellectually. So, so, and I think it's by design. The, one of the of the things yeah. of this, the grandiosity of these temples, was like, "I'm the Pharaoh, I'm God. You stay quiet down there, right?" Like, <laughs> right. And it's perfectly done. Like, you really feel that inferiority complex when you go there, right? Mm. So, imagine these Europeans, right? Like, they feel superior because they're French, right? And then they are uh, at the time of the Enlightenment with Napoleon. There is like right. nothing more arrogant in the world than that, like people like trained by Voltaire. And, and they show up in these temples where they don't understand anything and they're better built than anything that they could ever build. And imagine like, oh my God, this is like we're in front of something magnificent and they don't understand anything because they cannot read it. And all of a sudden they walk into this temple and they see a signs of the zodiac on the ceiling is the only point of connection that you have that oh, 
I may understand something out of this after all, because, oh, here is the signs of the zodiac. That is something that I can relate to. And until they found the Rosetta Stone that was written in, in Greek and, 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 and demotic and, and, the, and hieroglyphs, until that happened, then we have no point of contact in, in, in any way to recover all this knowledge in this, in this temple. So when they saw this, the first thing that they thought is, oh, if we have a stellar configuration on this ceiling, one of the first things that we can do is we can date the ceiling. We can know when it's from. And it was incredibly political because one of the first things, so it would take 20 years later for Jean-Francois Jean Champollion to decode the, the hieroglyphs using the Rosetta Stone. And when he was sent to Egypt, and he wanted to prove his theory that he could read hieroglyphs, uh, Napoleon III, I think, sent him there and under the condition that if he found anything that contradicted the, the scripture, the Bible, the Catholic, the, the Catholic scripture, uh, then he had to keep it to himself. So one of the biggest fears that they had, and you can imagine, this is the time of the French Revolution where they're putting into question Catholicism and, and religion and the, the right. knowledge. They were trying to use the leverage, what they learned in Egypt, in order to discredit the church. But on the other side, the church was trying to that not to happen. So there was this political game happening using the information from Egypt, basically. And so these, when they found this, it was a big deal because all of a sudden they could date the temple and it turned out to be that the temple is just 2000 years old. So they, with, in this particular instance, they didn't find something more than 4,000 years old, which would all the dating on the, all the chronology of the Bible would come down tumbling if that happened. So, <laughs> so that was the, the, the thing. And that was the importance of, of the signs of the Zodiac there where like, Oh, it's the only thing we understand about these ceilings. But, how close did they correspond? I mean, did they have the same kind of symbols, you know, like the Aquarius? Oh, the, and oh no, no, literally, like, literally, you have the 12 signs of the Zodiac as we know them today. You go there and you look at the ceiling and you can recognize, oh, yeah, here is Taurus, this is Leo, this is uh, Aries, wow. all of them. You can see them and, and they're beautifully beautiful. And, and they're beautiful because they they have this Egyptian taste to them. You recognize clearly when you look at Sagittarius, it is Sagittarius, but with Egyptian crowns and things like ah. that. So, so they have this Egyptian flavor and themes into them, but they're clearly the signs of the zodiac, undeniably. Especially, yeah, you could say, okay, I, I see, I see a, a bull. Okay, there is a bull. And I see a scorpion, okay, they have scorpions and bulls, okay. Right. And I see a scale, oh, okay, <laughs> more than two. But when you have the 12, it's like, yeah, these are the sides of the zodiac and undeniably. Fascinating. And, um, yeah, for those of you joining us, Jose Maria Barrera, we're discussing Dendera, Temple of Time. Uh, wonderful book, a, a visual and uh, spiritual feast into... Uh, an, an amazing structure that I'm so happy you're bringing, bringing it to the world. Like you said, more people need to know about this. And what happened to the temple? Was it something that it just slowly got abandoned as, uh, yeah, you so know, Christianity temples, and the Roman Empire and Islam or what happened to the temple? So at the end, what happened to this religion, right? This was 
it was the political institution of the time was the religion and the pharaohs who were the high priests. Mm -hmm. So obviously when that political rulership and that kingship died, basically all these temples dwindled down with them because they were part of the, the institution. And mm -hmm. I bet they required a lot of money to maintain this temple, like to swipe them every day and to keep them clean and, and, and imagine the amount of sand that goes into these temples every day. So, so it takes like to maintain these places was incredibly expensive. And when, when the political structure changes and they start to dwindle down, they, they get abandoned. And even even Roman Roman emperors like Caligula and, and these guys, some of their names are inscribed in these temples because for two hundred years after after they took over, they sponsored the temples and they kept sponsoring this because that was the way they controlled society. Right. But with the advent of Christianity, what happened is that these uh, religions start to dwindle down, right? And 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 all of a sudden it disappeared. And probably the last hieroglyphs are from the year 300 BC or so. And you can go to the Temple of Philia in the south in Aswan. And, and you can see you can see the last inscription known today in, in, in hieroglyphs, right? Written in hieroglyphs. And after that, because they, they used to speak Greek at the time, because they were like for 300 years and so on, no. then uh, hieroglyphs run out of use they were using in ritual ceremonies and in religious scripture and so on and but with the death of the religion then the language went away with it basically the, the script went away with it and yeah for 700 uh, 1700 years or so humanity forgot how to read these things and mm -hmm. even today we, we can decode sort of the the, the language and what is interesting is because it is a Semitic language, the way it's written is that vowels don't go into the writing, only consonants, just like, mm -hmm. like Hebrew or, or Arab. So we can read today the, the hieroglyphs. We don't know how they sound. So, so, and these, they were meant to be recited, right? Like all these writings on the walls, they were spells to be spelled out. That, that's what they were. So they were to be chanted. And but without vowels, like vowels is the meat of the bones of the consonants. So right. we don't know who to chant a, a hieroglyph, a ancient Egyptian, basically. So so we don't know how to to repeat their spells, basically in, in sound. And that's a one level that is just like how it sounded, right? Now the meaning itself is another story because okay, let's say we can decode what the words are and what is the, the name of things but what they meant with that in an allegorical way that's another level or layer that we're far removed from and so a lot of the knowledge of ancient egypt is gone forever anyway yeah it's a pity but yeah what a what an amazing civilization like one guest who was a Jungian once said uh, the egyptians weren't obsessed with death they were obsessed with eternity everything like you said was spilling and joining and recycling into this like multiverse and even when there's this quote that i love especially when you try to approach egypt or any symbolism and I wish he had a different last name, but uh, John Osman, he did write, the pyramid doesn't stand for something. It makes something visible. 
So like I said, the Egyptians were almost like trying to, he said, show us eternity with their temple. Show us what the universe looked like and how time really flowed. Uh, an amazing consciousness. And and the thing in such a gracious and elegant way, because you look at, you, you go at the Valley of the Kings and you get into the tombs of the pharaohs, the amount of color that you have there, the, the, the exquisite images that they made and very colorful and and they're very, the Egyptian images are very gracious. They're very, very at peace and, and full of color. So it's, and it's the color of the Nile that you see there. So even in the, in the, in the darkest spots, that is the places of death, they're so colorful. You have to admire, they, they were in love with life, not with death. It's, it's very, very interesting. Yes, indeed. And a quick question. I don't know if you would know the answer, and I'm trying to figure out. It might be my romantic uh, love for Egypt that's made me block it out. But obviously, a lot on this show has been interested in sacrifices. And, you know, the the sad thing about the ancients is their obsession with sacrifices. And nobody can point fingers at each other because, you know, you had the Greeks and the Persians <laughs> and the Jews and the Hebrews, but also Native Americans, even as far as the West Coast, uh, some of the tribes there were all into human sacrifice. Do you know if the Egyptians ever practice it or just more traditional sacrifices? Uh, it's not known. Mm. Uh, it seems that they didn't have human sacrifice. However, yeah. when you go to Abydos, which is a temple that is probably like an hour, like two hours north from Luxor, mm -hmm. there are these mass graves there that have been found, and they don't know if it is that. And well, you, yeah, you can consider this sacrifice, and it's like the servants in some cases were buried with the yeah. <laughs> with the king. That's a sacrifice, yes. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't know, basically, but but it seems that they were not as bad as well. <laughs> they were not throwing virgins in volcanoes and things yeah, like that. Yeah, like or, the, the Aztecs, for example, the those Aztecs. guys were. Brutal. Of course, that's for a different reason, right? Because you know the human sacrifice to appease the gods is one thing, but on the other hand. Uh, when a pharaoh died, he wanted to take his entourage with him because the belief was that his servants would serve him in the next life. Yes. So yes. it's kind he, of a come not, along rather than a appeasement type of thing. He was not, I'm going to take the, the, the hearts out of my enemies. But having said that, they were so brutal. And you can see it. One of the nice things about this temple is that it's a temple of life because the goddess Hathor, the goddess of the temple, was the goddess of life, of motherhood, and so on. So it's such a happy temple. And in many of the temples of Egypt, what you see on the walls is the pharaohs beheading the enemies. Mm -hmm. So there is all these beheadings on the walls. Like it's the first thing you see on the on the on the pylons of the of the temples is these very brutal guys with actually like just like like uh, grapes, but it's not grapes. When you look at them, it's heads. So, so they, they have like a bunch of heads on their hand, right? Like, and they're slaying the enemy. And this temple on the earth, on the earth hand, is not, but that's clearly military, right? It's a bellicose thing. This temple is just a temple, it's a feast of life. And, and that's one of the things that attract me the most about this temple is, is that, that sense of this is just joyful and beautiful. 
Yeah, and it was dedicated to Hathor. I believe she would be uh, correct. Aphrodite. I think the Greeks said she was Aphrodite or their version uh, of Aphrodite. She, she's very close to Isis, actually. Oh, and, right. and this, yeah, yeah, this temple, true. this temple is dedicated uh, to Hathor and Isis, and so those those are the two major goddesses of the temple, and there is a big. Uh, uh, Osirian component to this temple. The chapels on the on the ceiling of the temple is on, on, the, on, the, on the roof of the temple. They, you have these these chapels, and they're dedicated to Osiris. And you have all these Osirian scenes inside, and and one of the calendars, the calendar, the circular calendar, which now is in the Louvre. The the, the calendar, Zodiac of Dendera is the name. This is one of mm. the well known or famous things about this temple. Is now housed in the Louvre. This used to be the ceiling of an Osirian, a chapel de, dedicated to Osiris on the on the roof of the, of the temple. So Isis is the other goddess, like very important in, in this temple as well. You know, um, uh, Hathor is supposed to be uh, in at least one of her aspects of the cow goddess, right? They had cows in Egypt. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. And, where were they yeah, grazed? Right. You know, I, I almost imagine a big field, you know, with cows grazing with to the eat sand. <laughs> <laughs> to climb the pyramids oh. like goats. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like the fertility of the Nile is incredible. So you can have like pastures Everything. Right, where, with grass where they grew. It's more in, in a earlier periods, they used to worship bulls and, and the, 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 the main the, the, the main deities were the bulls. And if you go uh, to Saqqara, right, that is like a like half an hour north from Giza where the pyramids are, and there is the the pyramid of Joser is there. Uh, there is in there, there is one of the most fascinating things that you can visit in Egypt is this underground facility where they used to have the sacred bulls. So they have these sarcophagi that are like, gigantic the size of a room and they were supposed to be made to to house the the the, the apis which was the, the the sacred bulls so they used to have these bulls that very well fed and they grew up in the temples and they were the sacred animal of the temple and when they died they mummified them and they put them in these gigantic sarcophagus and it's one of the most fascinating fascinating things to visit there is the 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 burial place of the sacred bulls. Fascinating. And what do, what stance do you have on more of the sensationalistic uh, claims about Egypt? Like somebody who I enjoy watching is uh, Johanna from Funny Old World, and she start she's gone to Egypt and she does these podcasts, and she's approaches from a completely secular point of view. And the more she goes to Egypt, the more she does she realizes. There is some technology that there are nothing, not saying that's from aliens, but the Egyptians had some sort of technology that we have completely missed that's parallel. That's how they were able to achieve their amazing feats with architecture and how the stones are together. What do you think, Jose? So interesting, right? Like, uh, so I, before I did this book, I was more on that camp. Mm hmm. Like, but the more you learn, the more you read, 
and by the way, the more sublime it becomes, because the more you understand how Dr. Luz this was, and how, and clearly they had like, like the the feat of creating the pyramids, for example. They clearly had like their, their ways of engineering were like supreme in order to be able to build these 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 pyramids. Uh, but for example, this temple is also known for what they call the light bulbs of Tendera. I don't know if you ever heard. And it's uh, one of the claims like, oh, because there is an image in one of the crypts of the temple that has a couple of images that resemble, like, kind of look like light bulbs. Then some people claim, oh, that's a clear indication that these people had electricity and light bulbs. <laughs> and I, I think it detracts from, from like, it's a distraction from seeing the real magnificence of this. They, they are already magnificent without having to attach all these other speculations on them. You don't need them in order to see how wonderful they were. And I'm pretty sure there's a couple of things that they were able to do that we have no idea how to. I'm pretty sure of that. But if they did or not, is is secondary compared to what is. And, and these temples are amazing. And what they did without going very down into the speculation and the rabbit hole of trying to think, oh, they were made by aliens or uh, <laughs> some people say like they have sound technology. You used to be able to levitate rocks using this and so on. I don't know about that. Like they had a lot of manpower, by the way. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we must remember that the most magical, miraculous thing in this entire universe is the human imagination. And, and time. To innovate, yes, and to, and how to solve problems in ways that seemingly weren't there, that defy what we thought was science before. So we have to keep that uh, inspiration going. So, for I'm, sure. And by the way, I'm open to anything. Like if you say, oh, yeah, they, they had like, I don't know, like levitated like stones with, with sound. Okay, I'm open to that. Show it to me. And then I'm, I'm open to it, but I need evidence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, if they had cows, they, they could have oxen. And if they had oxen, they could pull the blocks around, right? They might have had, like, huge numbers of oxen or something. And, you know, the, I think the, the, the real heroes in these stories that we – they're barely mentioned, but I think a lot of the rocks of the pyramids would carry on the back of, you know what, donkeys. Donkeys. They, they had donkeys and these poor animals – They've been set. used. They've been used by humans for a long time, and they don't get the credit they deserve. Like they must are. rebel against their overlords one day. <laughs> Take a step. How would that work? You'd have to probably have a ten by ten array of donkeys all roped together for one block, right? Wouldn't you? One yeah, donkey couldn't carry a block. Oh no, no, no. But yeah, <laughs> a lot of and, and you see the, the beauty is when you go today to to Egypt. They haven't changed too much. You look at the, their their agricultural techniques and so on. It's beautiful. It's like a travel back in time. You go there and you see these people with the donkeys carrying stuff, and and they haven't changed much. Like the technology that they used today to harvest and and so on is pretty similar. You you have to do a big stretch in order to see what were they doing two thousand, three thousand years ago. It's very similar. Indeed, and you. Uh, you're also a fan of alchemy. Were you able to go to any of the uh, places, the haunts in Upper Egypt, where Zosimos and those guys hung out? Or uh, no, I haven't done that. Uh, however, the mindset that you get 
of reading symbols and studying symbology that comes from uh, the old alchemist is very useful when it comes to look at these places because you can use that set of like that approach of understanding on allegorical terms of things and and it fits very well this place so it's it's a, it's a good good skill to have right like think in terms of symbology uh, when when it comes to studying things like Egypt because they use that yeah, yeah, and I mean, our our brains haven't changed. Uh, our natural mm-hmm. way of seeing things is still images and symbols. We're just taught it so young to use, you know, writing and linear thinking. But um, I think our mind is still really can grow and understand the world and become part of the world if we lean more on symbols and images. I mean, Incorrect, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think that's why memes and emojis are so popular today and, and are so powerful to move things because it's, it's a part of our brain that really really makes us grow and understand the world. But I digress. Well, <laughs> an image is worth a thousand words. Huh? Yeah, the old cliche, <laughs> the old cliche stands. Yeah, it's yeah. very simple. And... Uh, of the gods in Egypt, do you have any specific favorite ones or that speak to you? Uh, yeah, I'm looking oh, behind you. I don't see an altar to any god yet. But. No, I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> my, my. Definitely Hathor. Mm-hmm. Hathor is my all time. Is and it's, it's a dualistic goddess. Like it has this beautiful side. Like the goddess of music and love and fertility and so on but it has a dark side too like sure. like she she used to take the the a feline uh, form and she used to be a lioness and a brutal lioness and actually the the meat of beer the way it was created right is that it was created to inherate Hathor because she was getting so mad and she was destroying humanity that the only way for other gods to appease her was to make her drunk with beer yeah and and then she fell asleep and then she stopped killing humans basically so she has this this other side that is and and when you go to the temple i don't take it lightly dude it's it's a powerful you can see you can still feel her presence on that temple and and she you you have to revere her and and have a lot of respect for her i understand you want to see how powerful the egyptian gods are is even today after like an authoritarian monotheistic regime has taken that place right and it's like uh, an absolutist uh, religion has taken that region Mm. even today those gods maintain Egypt alive and the economy of Egypt runs by the Egyptian gods because all the tourism that is fueled to Egypt, right. they're still run by the power of these gods and these temples and these places. So even after 2,000 years that they have need, not been working anymore, they <laughs> still, this country, the substance of, of Egypt, a big part of it comes from these gods still. And what is fascinating to 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 a Muslim place like that, which is fairly conservative, Egypt is conservative, is that you see images of Egyptian gods everywhere in in Egypt because of tourism they they have, and they're very proud of their heritage. So it's very interesting because like uh, 
Islam forbids the, the creation of images, right? Like of, of right. Uh, so, but but it's very interesting because they cannot destroy this because this this is what they live from, right? So so is this they have this <clears throat> this duality in, in 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 the split mind there because what you see there you go to Egypt what you see is Egyptian gods you don't see Allah anywhere is Egyptian gods everywhere. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It is, uh, it's incredible. And, um, Vance, do you have any favorite Egyptian gods? Uh, let me think. Um, I like, uh, Anubis because he's a dog, you know, <laughs> I like dogs <laughs> or Jackal, you know, close enough. Uh, he, like, he was the God of death. <laughs> what all do me? Oh, boy. What about me? That's a good question. I probably would have to go with uh, Set or Thought. Set is the trickster god. Yeah, and I'm always about the trickster, that force, that opposing force of nature that makes uh-huh. you change and adapt. And yeah, and then obviously Thought because of Hermes. I have to agree with you. Isis, she was a power of nature, dude. That yeah, was yeah. a power for guys. Yeah, like, oh, of course, amazing. Yeah, for sure, amazing. The goddess God. of magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Set, of I could imagine having God ISIS of... as a girlfriend. <laughs> that <was> scary. <laughs> yes, dear. Yes, dear. <laughs> yeah, ISIS is unbelievable force of nature. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think we are towards the end of the interview. Again, uh, highly recommend this book. Uh, it will definitely it will blow your mind. And again, he has charts about how the Egyptians did time, the zodiac. There's a section on the gods. The pictures, uh, the photographs are simply amazing of all the views of the temple. So, uh, if you uh, want to know anything or about ancient Egypt, this book is certainly a must. And of course, the writing is very good, very, very insightful. So, uh, Jose, if people want to get to know more about you, of course, I'll have this on the show notes when it's out. It's already on the show notes for this show. Where where do you want to send uh, the people? Uh, <clears throat> so I my website is josemariabarrera.com. Right, my name. J-O-S-E-M-A-R-I-A-B-A-R-R-E-R-A, a mouthful, is <laughs> <laughs> my name. Uh, yeah, just look for Dender at Temple of Time, and, and you'll find that. Uh, and the, basically, just to give an idea of what I did is, so I went to, back to the temple, and I took 5,000 photos of the ceiling, and I reconstructed the ceiling into one image at high resolution. And what the book is, is close-ups and, and a description and explanation of the ceiling. Uh, but the center of the book are the images of the ceiling, basically. That's what I wanted to do, is, is a commemoration and a festival of color on what these people, anonymous today, we don't know who built this, like the, the names of the particular artisans and priests that work on this, we don't know who they are, but they were at the level of Michelangelo, these people, incredible. Oh, yeah, incredible. Uh, Yeah, and uh, of course, let me repeat, I'll have this on the show notes. As as always, there will be an audio version coming out. It is on Rumble right now. I have to upload it to Rockfin for some reason. 
the live stream got screwed up. And when I look what <laughs> they were playing some high school wrestling, wrestling. On, my rock fin <laughs> on my rock fin channel when it should have been this show, but, uh, technology for you. We need Egyptian mindset to get, make sure this doesn't, but I will upload it to Rockfin later. And of course, again, the audio version will be out. Really appreciate everybody coming in the chat. Please support this show. Uh, up, we got some upcoming great shows. Uh, next week, I'll have a show on how the ancients actually had a mystic experience with, with some very good scholarship. So you can have a mystic experience. James True will join us because he's got some insights on AI becoming conscious and his idea of the demiurge and all that. So it'll be good. Shows on theurgy. April DeConnick will be joining us to discuss her latest book on early Christianity and more of the Gnostic sect. So a lot of stuff, a lot of Gnosis coming while you're cold inside, drinking your hot chocolate for the rest of January and February. So please support the show. I could always use the help. So as we say goodbye, Vance, thanks very much for uh, keeping us company and taking oh. care of the Chatico business. Sure. Quiet chat today, but they were interested and um, so was I. Yeah, Great yeah, they do. Mm, very yeah. much. Well, Jose, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate what you've done and good luck with everything. It's been my honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure is all ours again. So, everybody, yeah, please uh, stay warm. Have a good rest of your Saturn day, and we will be talking very soon. Take care, everybody. <laughs>